let's go to Matthew, the gospel, uh, chapter 4, and then we'll, we'll begin. Amen? Who's ready? Who's excited? <laughs> Week 5. So this series is going to take us all the way until Easter, Resurrection Sunday. And Resurrection Sunday will be the conclusion of this series. And so it's just a couple of weeks. Just a couple of weeks. If you did not know, this year, uh, Resurrection Sunday falls on April 17th. So after today, there's just three weeks, and, and, and we're there. And I got some exciting announcements later on uh, at the conclusion of the message. All right, so we read this name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and the church says, amen. amen. All right, verse 12. When Jesus heard that John had been put where? In prison, he withdrew to Galilee. Verse 13. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the Sea of Zebulun and Naphtali. Look, to fulfill what was said through the prophet who? Isaiah. Now this is, it's going to quote text from Isaiah. Land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. Verse 16, look, the people living in darkness have seen a great light. The people living in darkness have seen a great light on those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. And then it says, from that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Amen? Isaiah, who lived 600 years approximately before the time of Jesus, speaks to the land of Zebulun and Naphtali and says prophetically to those living in darkness, the light is coming, the light is coming, the light is coming. And so Matthew is writing that Jesus, after hearing that John has been in prison, went to live in this very same land that Isaiah spoke about 600 years prior and then he began with a message saying, repent, for the kingdom of God is here. And what Matthew wants us to know as readers is that the great light that was coming, spoken by Isaiah, is being fulfilled in Jesus coming to the land. In other words, it was a setup the whole time. How profound. Amen. Amen. And so I'm going to give you the title for my sermon today, and then you may be seated. You can share it with the person next to you. Tell them this. Heaven has come. And you're like, wait a minute. What do you mean heaven has come? I'm waiting to go to heaven. Right? But I want to speak to you that heaven has come. Heaven has come. Many of you are like, wait a minute. I must have missed it. I must have missed it because my life does not feel like this heaven that you claim has come. And so in this series, uh, we are challenging our understanding of this concept of heaven just, just being an afterthought to this present lifetime. And so m most of us, if not all of us, uh, have received this picture that heaven is just the place that hopefully we go to after we die. If, of course, we, you know, I don't know what everyone has believed, but even I would say our, the secular world to a degree 
may believe that hopefully one day they go to heaven if what? If good, their good that they did outweighs their bad. And so uh, that's kind of just a, a belief that's out there in the world in so much that it's kind of belief that has just been taken on by, by the church too. And we just place that hopefully, you know, if I believed in Jesus, then heaven is the place that I get to experience when I die. And if I didn't receive Jesus or if I was immoral, then hell is the place that I go to when I die. And so in this series, what we are saying and what we're suggesting, we're confronting the, the thought that heaven is just something that takes place later on. And the reason why we're able to do that and the reason why taking us on this long journey is because the scriptures don't paint heaven as just a place that we go to when we die. And so we're opening up our minds and what we're seeing through the scriptures is that the, the message that we're hearing is that it's not about heaven being something of later, it's about that heaven has already come to visit us and there's an invitation for you and I to step into that now. How does that sound? I can tell by the look of your faces. So, heaven has come. Heaven has come. And so I just want to pick up from where we left off last week, if you guys remember. Uh, we, we ended last week with a child whose mother was barren. And she would visit the temple. She would visit... The, the, the tabernacle, and her and her husband would come every year to bring their sacrifices and their offerings to the temple onto God, uh, but the condition of the temple isn't good, and that's because the temple has lost its meaning to the people, the, the, the nation of Israel. Uh, their history is that they have turned away from God, Yahweh, their Savior, the one who delivered them with a mighty hand out of Egypt, who conquered the great Pharaoh who oppressed them for 400 years. And so after that, God had given through Moses the, the, the law, the, his instructions, and, and a design to build this tabernacle. And the purpose of the tabernacle is where God's presence would not just stay in the skies or way up, but it was about building a, a, a place, building a sanctuary where God could dwell in the midst of his people who he had just redeemed. And so when you think of the temple and the tabernacle, and sometimes we get a little lost in all those details, what's most important for us to understand and know is that God needed a place, a place where he could come and dwell, fill that place with his presence, and then it was God's heart to invite the nation to come onto him and come to know him as a, the, the true God, the true king. He was their savior, and he wanted to be in their midst, and his presence wanted to fill every area of their life, them as a people, them as a community. He wanted to redeem them from their sin, from their human frailty, ultimately, not just so it could just be him and them, but so that him coming to know them would transform them. We see this where God first calls Moses, right? And Moses is the mediator between uh, God and these people. And we see as Moses is visiting God in this mountain, eventually Moses is transformed. And that is just, uh, that, that according to the text, that happens to him physically, but it has big significance of, of us when we meet God and we visit God and when we encounter his presence, ultimately it's for God to transform us into his image. 
And that is consistent with the beginning of creation, where we have learned throughout the series that when God goes to create man and when he goes to create humanity, he, he, he creates them from the dust of the earth. And so, man, you and I, we are dust, but we are also divine breath from God. And the, un, the uniting, the fusion of those two things, heavenly breath and, and dust from the earth, when those two things, look, come together, it becomes a living being. And that's a gift from God. Only God's design does that. And so you see the unification of dust and, 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 and breath, heavenly breath, and it creates life. And in Genesis 1, it tells us that we are made, what, in the image and the likeness of God. We're, we're, we're in his image. We are reflecting the face of God. And this is who Adam and Eve were. They were the image bearers of God on the earth. And he planted them where? In a place, in a garden. And this was not an ordinary garden like my garden in my yard. There's a tree of life. There's a, there's a river of life spreading to the rest of creation. And this is the place where God meets with his creation, and this is where they're supposed to learn of his wisdom and see his face and then spread the blessing of heaven to the rest of the world. But in their disobedience, what happens to them? They lose that place, and God has to exile them out of the garden because they're no longer in his image. And then the rest of the story that we have is about God trying to bring them, bring humanity back into that place so that he can transform them. And then we see this beautiful picture with Moses as he's encountering God on this mountain out in the wilderness. Uh, uh, as he's going and visiting God and speaking with God, he's being transformed by his visitation with God. This is what's supposed to happen to you and I when we say we're going to church. It's really not just to see who's there. Are they going to sing my favorite song this week? Hopefully, you know, the coffee's good. And the temp- Yes, all of those things matter to some degree, but ultimately, as we are making a visitation to God's house, it should be to transform us. And if it's not transforming us, if you and I, our hearts are closed off to God's transforming, then why are we even coming here, right? Why would you and I waste our time coming here? Yes, some of the people are really cool, and that's good. I like to be around cool people. I think most of you are cool. I hope some of you think I'm cool. But we're not coming here just to meet cool people. We're coming here to have a visitation with God. And so that a transformation could take place. And as Moses' face changed to the image of God, that too should be happening to you and I. Why? Because if you and I, we are changed, and I'm not talking about physically first, but if we're uh, us, our being, our character, our mind, our thought process, our actions, if that changes to the image of God, then what happens when we step out into our very own world? They will see God. But if we don't have change here, and then we go back out into the world, and we're just like the world, then all we have is religious activity. And that's not, it's not the power of God. That is not the power of God to us. And so they have this tabernacle where God is going to make his house, fill it with his glory. And so when the people come, then they can be transformed into the very image of God and then be a blessing to the rest 
of the nations around them. And so God's plan is to not leave them in the wilderness. The purpose was not to build that tabernacle, that tent in the wilderness, but ultimately was to bring them into a land that he promised. Just as God took Adam and Eve and he placed them in a garden to give them a home, a, a, a place of dwelling with God, and then he commissioned Adam and Eve to leave the garden and to fill the earth, multiply, rule, and subdue, and all of that, is the same thing that was supposed to happen with the nation of Israel. They needed to get into a place, which was the land of Canaan, a, a, a land that flowed with milk and honey. The Bible says it's a land that drank rain from heaven, and so they were supposed to have this home. This was going to be where God was going to be. Eventually, after the tabernacle was there, it would be set up under uh, King Solomon. Solomon, he would build a, a, a beautiful, magnificent temple. And if you read in the book of Kings, you know, uh, uh, the design of the temple, inside the temple was gold, but there were trees and there were pomegranates and there were leaves. And what's so beautiful is that this temple was designed like a garden. It, it has the, the same image and design, bringing it back to this beautiful garden of Eden. And though it's like the tabernacle on steroids, there's something still humbling because as you go through it, you're passing through the garden, this meeting place that the first creation got to experience with God. And there's cherubim, gold, and woven into the design patterns, just as there were cherubim in the Garden of Eden. And so where we left off is that the nation gets into the land of promise and blessing. They get into their Eden, and then they forsake God. They become just like the people who were already inheriting, who already were living in the land. And these people did not honor Yahweh. These people were, were not moral. These people worshipped other gods to the point they had such corrupt worship that they were sacrificing their own children to appease these gods. And so part of what God wanted to do with his people was to bring them into the land and show the goodness of Yahweh. And so that these people and, 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 and the other nations further abroad could see the goodness, the wisdom of God, and, and, and be drawn to it. But the nation of Israel had to be image bearers. But they lost their image and they became just like the Canaanites living in the land. And the tragic story is that you could not tell the difference between God's people, Israel, and those people who were living in the land. Tragedy. Sad. It's absolutely sad. That's what happens when you get to the end of the book of Judges. You cannot tell them apart. They lost the purpose of the temple, of the sanctuary, they were no longer coming there and, and honoring God and spreading the goodness of God from that tabernacle to the rest of the land. But where we read and where we left off last week was that there was this woman named Hannah with her husband Elkanah who were still faithfully visiting the temple. And this is why we preached last week under the theme, a temple is needed. A temple is absolutely needed. You, we need to disconnect from the world around us and get back into that place where God dwells. And so even though the nation forgot about God, and even the priests who were in the temple, Levi and his son, uh, 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 Eli and his, his, his two boys who were corrupt, even though they forgot and they just held position in the temple, there were still people who genuinely went to seek God. And God used that. 
God used that. She was barren. Hannah, she couldn't have any children. And then she made a prayer for God to remember her. And and God opened up her womb and she was able to conceive. And she told God, if you open up my womb, then I'm going to give this child back to you. I'm going to give him back to the temple. And then God used the heart that was going to the temple in pursuit of him. And the boy Samuel is blessed. God is receiving Samuel. He's growing in favor in the temple. And God is rejecting Eli and his sons. Eventually, God truly rejects them. His boys die. The Ark of the Covenant is stolen. Eli hears the news, falls off the chair, breaks his neck. But the boy Samuel, God lifts as a prophet, a prophet who is calling the nation back to the heart of God and back to the temple, saying like, yes, your lives are busy, and yes, you're distracted by many things, but turn your attention and come back to the tabernacle, come back to the temple where God is, where we can be transformed by him. And so under Samuel's uh, great leadership and heart for God, the nation is, is turning around. The nation, little by little, is repenting, and God is using him in a great way. But as Samuel is getting older, his sons are growing up, and, and, and his sons don't fear God. And so now the nation and some of the leaders are like, hey, Samuel, you're getting old, and you know what? Your, your boys are not looking. They're not like you. They're not after the heart of God, so uh, we, need to, we need to do something. And their response should have been, we still need to keep coming to the temple, and we need to be a people that are looking for God. But that's not what they default to. They look to the nations around them, and the nations around them are corrupt, and they choose that pattern that says, you know what we need? We need a king among us. But that's not what they, they didn't need a human king. They just needed their hearts to be in pursuit of God's presence in that temple. And so I just want to read 1 Samuel 8. This is where we kind of close. So all the elders, this is 1 Samuel 8 at verse 4. So look, all the elders of Israel gathered together and they came to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, you are old and your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us such as all the other nations have. But when they said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord, and the Lord told him, listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. And so this is what, not just this generation, not just Samuel's generation failed to see, but the generations before they miss that while they had the temple, that meant that God was their king. That's what they missed. They didn't just have a religious system. The temple is also to teach you that God is king. And I think that's the problem that has come even into where we want church, but we don't want God as king. Right? Like they, a lot of people like church. They, we, we like the atmosphere. We like good motivational sermons. You know? We like you know, uh, feeling good that we came to the house of God. And some of us don't mind temple. We just don't want God as king. And this is why the nation of Israel, up until Samuel's point, had the tabernacle, but they didn't have God as king. But God... God came to these people as their king. He, he wanted them to see his power, his might, and his deliverance was about him being king in their life. Do any of us know when's the first time where you see these people kind of acknowledge God as king? Well, they, they, they kind of do it naturally. When God 
remembers them when they're in Egypt, and now we're going back a little bit, when God remembers them in Egypt, Egypt under the oppression of Pharaoh, and he delivers them, Moses goes in with 10 words of, and, and, and 10, you know, acts of God's power with him, and Pharaoh, Pharaoh finally releases them, and then they get out into the wilderness, and then Pharaoh changes his mind, what did I do? I made a mistake, let's go and get these people, bring them back. And so God opens up the, the, the sea for Moses and the Israelites, and they cross over, and then Pharaoh and his, 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 his mighty warriors and his chariots, they go in pursuit, and as Israel crosses, then God swallows, swallows Pharaoh's army, and he drowns their, their enemies right before them. You know what naturally happens to the Israelites? They break out in praise because they get it. That they naturally, no one, Moses doesn't have to say, now bow down, and you should worship, and you should make God. Naturally, when, you, when the power of God comes into your life, naturally, you will respond to God as a king. And in Exodus chapter 15, it's kind of like a forgotten chapter. I don't have, I've never heard anyone preach on Exodus chapter 15. But in Exodus chapter 15, after the mighty deliverance, you know what happens? They break out in worship and in song. In Exodus 15, verse 1 and 2, let's, I'll just read a couple of verses from this chapter. Then Moses and the Israelites sang this song to the Lord, Yahweh. Now, here's another thing just to pay attention to. Anytime when you're reading in your Bibles and you see the word Lord in capital, don't, don't think that that word Lord there is like, oh, master, someone and, you know, that you respect, you're going to call them Lord, maybe someone in a higher position or someone maybe older than you, and so you're just giving reverence of respect. When you see the capital L-O-R-D in our English translations, that is where in the manuscripts we actually see the name of God, and it's Yahweh. So it's about identity. It's not just respect and reverence to someone above you. No, when you read that, they're, 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 they're directly communicating or they're directly addressing Yahweh. So then Moses said to the Israelites, Moses and Israelites, sang this, look, sang this song to Yahweh. I will sing to Yahweh for, look, he is highly exalted. Both horse and driver he has hurled into the sea. Yahweh is my strength and my defense. He has become my salvation. Look, he is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, I will exalt him. Look what naturally comes out of the people. They don't need no Ten Commandments. They don't need no instructions from Moses. They have seen the mighty deliverance. He is their salvation, and they're bowing down to him and saying, he is my salvation. Verse 12 and 13, we'll just skip down. Look, you stretch out your right hand, and the earth swallows your enemies. In your unfailing love, you will lead the people you have redeemed. In strength, you will guide them, look, to your holy dwelling. And this, you have to think of the timeline. The pattern of the tabernacle doesn't come till later on, but naturally they're understanding that, God, if you're delivering us from here, then there must be a place of dwelling that you want us and you in. This is just coming out in their song. Verse 17 and 18, you will bring them in and plant them on the mountain of your inheritance, the place Yahweh you made for your dwelling, the sanctuary, Lord, your hands established. And look at verse 18, the Lord reigns forever and ever. Who reigns? The, Yahweh reigns. What are they saying? Yahweh, you who. In this time, in this culture, to, to, to use words of reigning, you're talking about a king. They're saying, you're our God, you're our Savior, 
and, and you reign as king. Not Pharaoh. Pharaoh's not the king anymore. His, to them, his body has floating somewhere in a sea behind them. Yahweh, you are king. This is the song that comes out of the heart that encountered God. And so the nation is going to begin and go forward with God as their king. And by the time we get to Samuel, they're asking him to give them a human king. What, what did they lose along the way? What did they lose? In this song, they talk about a dwelling place, a sanctuary that, that God wanted to bring them into with their king, Yahweh being their king. By the time you get to Samuel, they're not asking Samuel, hey, your sons are bad. We need this place of dwelling still. We need Yahweh as king. No, they could care less about that tabernacle, and they're asking for a human king. And so what happens in the rest of the storyline of our Bibles? God says, you want a king? Samuel, go ahead, give him a king. And the first king of, of the nation is Saul. And he, he looks the part, but he's definitely not. He's not the king that they need. Looks the part, tall, handsome, but he's not, he's not the king. The only king that this nation needed was Yahweh as their king. And this is something that we today need to understand. Yes, we do need leaders in the church, and yes, we do need governors, and we need officials, and we need godly men and women in certain places, but at the end of the day, when that system fails, do not forget that God is still king. Okay? Don't, do not forget that when you got a, you know, a bad principal in the school, you still got to declare that God is king. When your boss, you think he's Satan himself, you got to know that God is still king. When our systems fail us and our human leaders fail us, we have to know that God is still king. But our problem is just like their problem. When one leader fails, we're like, we need a new, we need a, we need a new human. We need a new human king. We need a new human leader. No, what you need to know is not to forsake the temple and not to forget and allow God to still be king in your life. And God being king in our lives is not having a, 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 a picture frame on your wall that says God is king. It's not, that's not how we make God king. We make God king by submitting to his kingdom. It's a submission to his kingdom. God's not automatically king because you came to church. Because I know what it is to come to church and be rebellious. God's not king, right? He's not, he's not king. He's not king in my life. I'm in church, but he's not king. And so God eventually will reject King Saul, and God would look for a man after his own heart, and eventually David would become, you could say, Israel's true king. But even David was insufficient to be. <laughs> David could never be that king that they sang about in Exodus chapter 15, the king that would reign forever, the king that would bring them into the dwelling. You know what? David built his temple, and he's like, you know what? I need to build a house for God. And God like, not even you can build me a house. He's like, not even, not even, you got too much blood on your hands. So yeah, he might be in history, 
Israel's greatest king, and he was, but by no means was he a perfect king that they needed. God said, you, you, your hands are too dirty even to build my house. Just to put some perspective on the greatest king that Israel had, God did not even permit him to build. And so God would allow and grace his son Solomon to, to build the temple, and we read about that in the book of Kings. But what's happening with the, with the people? Well, how well you think they're going to do? When they think that a human king is what they need, the history, the rest of the story, they drive the nation to the ground. The cycle repeats itself. The cycle repeats itself, and they are far, far from God. Again, the temple that Solomon built is in the land. It's there. But the heart of the people is so, so far away. Again, the land gets plagued with idolatry, worship of other gods, to the point that God says, you're no longer in my image. And the same thing that happened to Adam and Eve, and God had to take them out of the garden, is the same thing that happens to the nation of Israel. God allows their enemies to come in and take them out of the land that he gave them. By the time that first wave of attack coming from their enemies from the north, the Assyrians, at that point, the, na- the nation was so corrupt, they so lost the image of God that they divided themselves. They don't even know who they are as a people. And this is what happens when we lose being the image of God, then what ends up happening to us. Once we're disconnected from the image of God, we in turn will be disconnected from one another. Because we no longer look like God, and you don't look like me, and I don't look like you. So what naturally happens, we separate. And that's what so much division in the church is a sign that we have lost the image of God. If we're all in the image of God, that would unify us. But the division is created because one of us is not looking like the image of God. And so what happens to the nation? They divide as a people. There are 12 tribes under God's rule and reign with him as king, but then they divide, and now they got a king in the north and a king in the south. <laughs> look, look how terrible that is to the plan of God for them. So now they're no longer a nation, a kingdom of priests. They have two kings, 10 tribes go to the north, two tribes go to the south, and they are, have drama with one another. You can say the southern kingdom is less bad. You, throughout, the, throughout their lifetime, I mean, the north, oh, wretched, wretched. Just read the story. Wretched. Those people in the north, the kings there, they're not, there was not one king in the north that was like, man, we got to come back to the heart of God. The southern kingdom, which was the king uh, there in Jerusalem where, where David's line was, you would have a little glimpse of someone's heart saying, ah, we got to go back to God. But in the end, not, none of these human kings could ever bring these people back to the temple and back into the presence of God. And so you could imagine what their history looks like. I invite you to read it. But then what takes place is God starts to raise up prophets. This is where prophets come along in our Bible. What are these guys? These guys are always weird. <laughs> prophets God used were men trying to call the people back into repentance, to call them back, back to his heart, back to his temple. And one of the most amazing things in this story 
is that while the nation from generation to generation was unfail, uh, was unfaithful to the covenant promise that they made with God, God, generation after generation, was faithful to the covenant promise that he made, not just to them, but to Abraham. God was keeping a faithful promise to a dead man. From generation to generation, every time that generation failed, God was remembering his promise that he made to Abraham to bless these people and for these people to be a blessing to the rest of the world. Talk about Yahweh being faithful. And so God would allow, history would show that the Syrians would come in and just annihilate these tribes from the north, dispersing them. They're like known as like the 10 lost tribes. We don't know what happened to them. They got carried off by the Syrian army, and then you only had the remaining two tribes down in the south. Later on, God would allow the Babylonians under King Nebuchadnezzar to come in and to do the same, destroy the temple, carry off a bunch of exiles into Babylon. And this is where we get in our Bibles a story about Daniel. That's kind of just context of what's happening in, 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 our, in our story. But what God would do is God would raise up prophets throughout all these time periods, inviting the people to repent and turn back to God. And so the text that we read in Matthew, that we opened up with in Matthew chapter 4, talks about the prophet Isaiah, where Isaiah says to the land of Naphtali and Zebulun, where darkness was, a, a great light is, is, is going to dawn. And so what's beautiful about the book of Isaiah specifically as a, as a prophetic book is while it's calling the people, yes, back into repentance with God, it is, it is a book of hope of the returning king. Amen? It is a book of hope of the returning king. And so this is why Isaiah is able to say that in the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, there's a light that's going to come. How beautiful is that? And in Isaiah 52, I just want to read this for you. Now remember, this is Isaiah. This is several hundred years before Jesus has come on the scene. And in Isaiah 52, verse 5, it says this, And now what do I have here, declares who? Yahweh. Okay? Declares who? Yahweh. For my people have been taken away for nothing, and those who rule them mock. Where's Isaiah in the timeline? Isaiah is between when the Syrians came in and took over those tribes in the north, but before the Babylonians come with Nebuchadnezzar, okay? So this is why he says, for my people have been, look, taken away for nothing, and those who rule them mock, declares Yahweh. And all day long, my name is constantly blasphemed. Look, verse 6, therefore, my people will know my name. And so what is Yahweh saying? Even though they're in a bad condition, even though they have been dispersed, even though right now the enemy is blaspheming the name of God, he is promising that his name will be restored among his people. So he's not giving up. God's not going to stop fighting for his people, and God's not going to quit on his, of his good plan. All day long, my name is constantly blasphemed. Therefore, my people will know my name. Therefore, in that day, look, they will know that it is I who foretold this. Yes, it is I. And then he goes on to say in verse 7, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those, look, who bring what? Good news. 
How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who look, proclaim peace who bring good tidings, good news again, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, your God reigns. And so this is actually a picture. We're supposed to see a picture here. Now, Zion is just the city of David. It's Jerusalem. It's where the temple is. It's where the walls are. And what Isaiah is saying here, pretend you are, uh, you are of Israel. You are of the remaining southern you know, kingdom there. And you're, you're on the walls. You're in Zion. You're on, the, you're, on the, you're, you're on the temple walls. And you're looking out ahead of you as the mountains. And what's around you is terror because you know that the Syrians came not so long ago and they obliterated the northern kingdom. So could you imagine the rumor? Could you imagine the fear? Are we next? And so the, Isaiah the prophet is saying, speaking to you who are in Zion, he's saying, how beautiful on the mountains. Now imagine you looking forward and on the mountain you see messenger, a messenger who's coming down the mountain, coming to you. Is he coming with bad news? Is he coming saying the Assyrians are coming? Is he saying here comes Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians? But what he says is the messenger has come with good news. The messenger is saying proclaim peace, Zion. Proclaim salvation. Your God, your king is not dead. Your king still reigns. So prophetically, Isaiah is saying, even though it does not look like Yahweh is king, here's the hope that your salvation is coming. And there's a king who still sits on the throne. Look, he says, listen, your watchmen, because there were watchmen along the walls, right? You got to watch when you have a city, you have to build walls and you have to have watchmen on the walls to make sure, make sure that the enemy's not coming, be ready to fight. He says, listen, your watchmen, lift up your voices. Together, they shout for joy. When look, when who comes? When who comes? When Yahweh returns to Zion, they will see it with their what? Their own eyes. Burst into songs of joy together, you ruins of Jerusalem. For who? Yahweh has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. Yahweh will lay, look at this. Yahweh will lay bare his holy arm in the sight of all the nations and all the ends of the earth will see the salvation of their God. So Isaiah is telling Jerusalem, the watchmen, those there, sing for joy. Because salvation is what? Salvation is coming. This is, this is, sing the same songs that Israel sang when they came out and passed through the sea. Remember, they just broke out naturally in song and worship when they passed through the sea. Why? Because God was their salvation. And in Exodus 15, they end their song saying, he reigns. He reigns as king. And so now Isaiah is saying, I know it looks bad, but salvation is coming. Who is coming? Yahweh is coming. You gotta, we gotta, Yahweh is coming. He will bear out his arm and they will see their salvation. Okay? So what does Isaiah and the other prophets do for the nation? They give hope that Yahweh is still king and that he will come where? Back to Zion. 
So when we talk as Christians, and this is important for us to understand, when we talk as Christians that the Jews were waiting for a Messiah, what we need to understand is that they were waiting for Yahweh to return. It's, it's these texts that are telling them that Yahweh is coming, and he's going to reclaim his throne, he's going to rule, and if you just keep reading the books of Isaiah, you will see uh, Isaiah talks about uh, the servant coming for justice, to bring justice to the rest of the nations. Isaiah is a, a, a beautiful book. We read from 52. I want to read from 40. The verses are not going to be there, but Isaiah was preaching hope and comfort to these people. Isaiah 40 is a very well-known passage of, uh, in uh, uh, text where it says, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Verse 3 says this, look, does this sound familiar to you? But this is Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. But what does the, that word Lord mean when it's in all caps? It means Yahweh. So Isaiah saying, there's a voice of one calling in the wilderness who's shouting, prepare the way of Yahweh, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low, the rough ground shall become level and rugged places plain. And so Isaiah is saying, he's still in, in, in chapter 40, he's saying there's, there's a voice that's shouting out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Who? Prepare what? Yahweh is coming. Yahweh is coming. The king is coming. This stuff gets me excited. I don't know. So as bad as it seems, the king is still alive. He is coming. Shout for joy. And there's a voice calling out in the wilderness of good news that is coming. And they're saying, Yahweh's coming. Yahweh's coming. Yahweh's coming. Now, we opened up with Matthew chapter 4, where Jesus heard that who was in prison? John. But who's John? Well, we're getting introduced to this character known to us as John the what? The Baptist. And if you open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 3, it tells us this. In those days, John the Baptist came what? Preaching. He came announcing. Where? In the wilderness. Wait a minute. Isaiah said that there would be a voice in the wilderness shouting, saying to prepare the way because who's coming? Who, who's coming? Yahweh is coming. Right? John the Baptist said, prepare, make the path straight because who's coming? Yahweh's coming. And then we get that there's a man in the wilderness. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. And look at what he said. Repent for what? The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Isaiah was saying the king is coming and the king is Yahweh. John the Baptist says, hey, y'all need to repent because what? The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And you better believe if you are uh, 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 of Jewish descent in this time and there is a man who is out in the wilderness and he's saying repent because the kingdom of heaven is at hand, you better believe that all the listeners, everyone hearing is like, 
Is it now the time that Yahweh is coming? Why else would so many crowds be drawn to a crazy man who's got a crazy outfit, who eats locusts as snacks and got camel's hair as clothes? Who would be drawn to a lunatic like that unless you knew that there was a prophetic word of hope that Yahweh was coming to retake his throne? And this presented crowds running to John the Baptist. And they were going out into the wilderness. And you know where John decided to go? He decided to go to the Jordan River. And he starts dunking people in water. Repent, the kingdom of heaven is coming. It's coming. The Jordan River, why would the Jordan Have we read about that anywhere? Yeah, we have. Yes, we have. The Jordan River was the place that God took the nation of Israel right through before they stepped into the land that he had promised. And when they get into that land, they fail to keep God as king. Them going through the waters was to show, demonstrate God's goodness of deliverance. And with the generation before, he took them through the Red Sea under Moses' leadership. And they passed through the waters, and they were headed towards the promised land. But Moses is not able to take them into the promised land because he too falls short. But then Joshua gets in front of the Jordan River and the Jordan opens up and they cross through the river showing God's mighty hand of deliverance all for them to then go in and then possess the land that he promised to them. And so what John the Baptist is doing is he's reenacting the same story all over again. But Israel in the past, they failed when they came out through the waters. But now this time John the Baptist is taking them through the waters of the Jordan and he's not just going to baptize them, but you're going to see Jesus is going to come on the scene. And Jesus is going to pass through the waters himself. And they're going to go through the waters. And then John the Baptist is going to say, the kingdom of God is really, really close. But then look what Matthew says about John. John says, right, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. And then Matthew says, just so you don't miss what's going on here, us readers. Matthew's going to tell us, this is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah. So now Matthew's going to say, you remember, you guys remember when Isaiah was saying that there's a voice that's going to be crying in the wilderness, prepare, make the path straight. Here comes Yahweh. Matthew's going to tell you, this now is the voice of the one crying out in the wilderness. This is he of who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make his path straight for him. Wait a minute, I thought Yahweh was coming. I thought Yahweh was coming. Well, he is coming. It's a prophetic word that he's coming. But wait a minute, who comes? Jesus comes. But I thought Yahweh was coming. Well, yes, Yahweh is coming. But yes, Jesus came. It can only be that Jesus is Yahweh. So, so this is part of the foundation of what you and I need to understand as Christian believers. When we talk about Jesus, scriptures are are telling us, not you and I are making this up, not three guys in a room made this up, the message of Jesus coming to earth is Yahweh 
coming to keep his promise to establish, look, the kingdom of heaven on earth. What did John say? The kingdom of heaven is near. The kingdom of heaven is near. The king is coming. Do you see that? And so when Jesus comes, we're going to get to Jesus coming right now. When Jesus comes into the scene, when John sees him, it says, John says, behold, the Lamb of God, which takes away the sins of the world. Jesus tells John, you got to baptize me. And John's like, no, you should be the one baptizing me. Jesus is like, no, baptize me. And when Jesus gets baptized, the Bible tells us that the heavens are opened. Oh, come on. Come on, guys. The heavens are opened? All through the Old Testament, when we're seeing heaven come to earth, and Jacob, right, he has this vision, the heavens open up, and he sees messengers of heaven ascending and descending down this staircase, right? And, and Jacob even knew, he's like, this is none other than the house of God, and he puts the stone there, right, and he renames the place Bethel. In Jesus' baptism, what happens? The heavens open up. And it says a voice comes out of heaven saying, this is my beloved son and whom I'm well pleased. And they see the spirit of God descending upon him. What is happening? Heaven is coming to earth. Through who? Through Jesus. Yahweh is coming to earth. Through who? Through Jesus. Heaven is coming to earth. Through who? Through Jesus, this is why Jesus is not afraid later on to say, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up again. He knows exactly who he is. And they're over there getting all mad, the religious leaders. How dare you say you're going to destroy the temple? It took us all these years. Are you crazy? (laughs) I can imagine Jesus would be like, Yahweh don't live over there, my friends. (laughs) Not in that den of thieves. You turn the house of prayer into a den of thieves. You got, yeah, you got church. Yeah, you got your systems. Yeah, you got your sacrifices, but there's corruption there. People are being deceived there. And then Jesus says, this is, this is the temple right here. And so no longer is that building there in Jerusalem, the tabernacle and the temple where God's presence is dwelling. The tabernacle and the temple is, see, in the tabernacle and in the temple, they would wait and the presence of God would come down on a cloud, right? It would come out, of, it would come and fill that place. But in Jesus' baptism, the, the Spirit of God is not filling the temple over in Jerusalem. It's filling Jesus. And so Jesus becomes the temple. And so when, when Yahweh comes, he, come, he brings heaven with him. He brings heaven with him. And then in the Gospel of Mark, each Gospel is beautiful in their depictions and in their explanations of who Jesus is. And I love what Mark does, how Mark comes out the gate flying. No warm-up, no nothing. Open your Bibles right now, Mark chapter 1, verse 1. He's not going to warm you up with a birth story and, 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 and go through some, you know, he's going to come out, he's coming out the gate swinging. Mark 1, chapter 1 says this, the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. The beginning 
of the good news. Isn't it Isaiah where we read about the good news happening and coming first? Good news was spoken about and good tidings were spoken about through the voice of Isaiah the prophet talking about Yahweh's coming. Get your song ready. Put on your dancing shoes. Get your tambourines. Get ready for your worship service because the king is on its way. And Mark says in the beginning, the good news about Jesus. And then we read Messiah. Some of your translations might say Christ. Christ is just where we get the Greek word Christos, which is where we get the Hebrew word Messiah, which Messiah just means the anointed one, and the anointed one were kings. Yeah, you, you, the, the king got anointed. And so Mark is saying, this is the good news about King Jesus. But the prophets were saying that Yahweh was coming back as king. And so when Mark is telling you, yes, Yahweh is here in the flesh, and his name is Jesus. And so this word, good news, uh, where is it at? Good news. That word, good news, it's not like how you and I use good news. You know, they got that good BOGO special at Publix where you call someone like, yo, good news, good news. Today and only today, they got the Reese's. Cereal on BOGO, good news, you know? But that's not the good news context that's being used here. This is not even good news. They're giving us Friday off. Now, I know that's good news. That's maybe great news to you, right? You step it up a notch to great news when they tell you you could get Friday off. They approved your vacation. Good news. But this good news is not in the same context that we use the word good news. To say the word good news was not associated to you having a day off, was not about some special going on at Target. This word good news was directly associated to kingdom, okay? Directly associated to this word and dealings of the kingdom. And so in some of your Bibles, if you're reading Mark 1.1 in uh, New International Version, you're going to see the beginning of the good news in another translation, anyone has something else? The beginning of the gospel. And so depending on your English translation, whether you're reading in Mark or you're reading in Matthew, Luke, or John, or even you get into the New Testament letters, and it's either going to use the word good news or the gospel. So when we talk about, oh, you got to preach the gospel, what you're actually saying is you have to preach the good news. But what is important to understand is the context of the word good news. We're not talking about good news of a special. Good news was a word, is it comes from a Greek word, euangelion. And I put it up, just to have a slide there. So in your Bibles, you're going to see good news or you're going to see the gospel. Anytime you read the gospel, know that it means good news. But anytime you read good news or you read gospel, in the Greek, it's this word euangelion. Now, that word is used specifically to talk about when there's a new king being inaugurated, Okay? When there's a new king coming into rule and reign, what would happen is they would announce to the rest of the nation, they would announce to the people around, they would have heralds, people who would announce, and they would say, the euangelion has arrived, it is here. The king is now here. 
So you're not using, oh, good news, we have the day off. No, good news in context of the king has arrived. Or we would use, they would use the word, we have just won a mighty battle. Euangelion, good news, the king is victorious. So that's the context of the word good news. It was used to announce, it was used to magnify that of a king, and the heralds would go out into the streets, and they would let the whole city know, the whole people, Euangelion, our king is victorious, or Euangelion, the king has now taken his throne. That's the kind of way that the word good news was used. Now, what Mark does, he comes out swinging, because what he's saying is not good news, there's a special in Target today. He's saying good news, the king is here. You see that? So what is the gospel? What is the gospel? What is the gospel to you? What, we, I see Christians all the time, we got to say the gospel, we got to share the gospel, we got to share the gospel. But what is the gospel? The gospel is the good news. And by context, what is the good news? That Yahweh, that Jesus is the king, and that what? The kingdom of heaven has come, not will come. Mark 1 verse 14 says this, after John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news. So John the Baptist was saying, Euangelion, the king is coming. Jesus went preaching the message saying, Euangelion is here. Ta-da, folks. John said, the good news, the kingdom of heaven is coming near. And Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven is now here through him. Heaven has come. Heaven has come. In the Gospel of Mark, it, this is how Mark, Mark's language is a little different than, uh, than Matthew's. Mark and Luke kind of share in their same expression in that after John was put in prison, this is Mark 1.14, Jesus went into the Galilee proclaiming the euangelion of what? Of God, the good news of God. The time has come. Now, this is Jesus. He said the kingdom of God has come near, repent, and believe the good news. Mark likes to use the language, the kingdom of God. Matthew likes to use the language, the kingdom of heaven. What's the difference? There is none. It's just how they're addressing and acknowledging God's reign coming to earth. So Mark says, the kingdom of God is now here. How? Through Jesus. So we're not waiting for God to rule. God is already ruling. God is already ruling. When did that start? Because I didn't get the memo. The gospel is our memo that the kingdom of God is now here and has come through Jesus. There's a king available to you and I right now. Heaven is available to you and I right now. And this is why when we see Jesus come into his ministry, what gives his authority as we established is his words and the power associated to his words. And more than any other message, and this is something good for all of us to know, more than any other message that you, you saw frequently coming out of the mouth of Jesus, his most repeated message is this, the kingdom of heaven is here. 
We have to understand the gospel through that of a kingdom. And that Yahweh has come to reign and he reigns now, regardless of leadership that we see, regardless of what decisions other people are making. God is king now. He's king right now. And how we submit ourselves to that king is going to be how the rest of the world will experience his kingdom or not. And so what does Jesus do? He takes these people up into a mountain and he starts saying, blessed are the poor, blessed are the mourn. And he starts talking about the inheritance that belongs to them. And in the Sermon on the Mount, we see Jesus just go on. He goes on for three chapters. And you know what he's disclosing? The ways of the kingdom. He's disclosing the ways of the kingdom. And this is profound and this is significant. Because he's stating that the kingdom of heaven is here. Yahweh has come now. And he reigns. And so who's going out to him? The rejected, the poor, the broken, the hurting those stepped on, those overlooked, and they're drawn into this message. And this is scandalous. You have to know that too. You have to know that this is scandalous. Why? Because in proper context of that area, the king already sits on the throne. And and his name is Caesar Augustus. For you see, before Jesus was born and, 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 and before our gospels were written saying, Euangelion? Do you know that that same word, Euangelion, was used to speak about Caesar Augustus when he was born? And they believed that he was the king and he was the one who was going to bring peace to all of Rome? I found this amazing when I learned this. But there's an inscription in a temple that dates probably 30 years before Jesus comes on the scene. And it's an inscription about Caesar Augustus and his birth. Let me read it to you. It says, since providence, providence was a Greek female god who her gift was divine providence and could also, because of being able to foresee times and things, providence would bless creation with things in order to provide grace to the people. And so there's an inscription in the temple till this day that reads this, since providence, this goddess, which has ordered, look, she has ordered all things and is deeply interested in our life, has set in most perfect order, look, by giving us Augustus. So this Roman Empire believed that this goddess providence because she cared deeply for the people and her sovereignty, she is giving them Augustus whom she filled with virtue, look, that he might benefit humankind, look, sending him as a savior, both for us and for our descendants, that he might end war and arrange all things. And since he, Caesar, by his appearance, surpassing all previous benefactors and not even leaving to posterity any hope of surpassing what he has done, and look, since the birthday birthday of the god Augustus was the beginning of the good news, the euangelion, for the world that came by reason of him. And so, you got Mark saying, I'm sorry, 
the euangelion did not come when providence birthed you Caesar Augustus. Because this is what they believed. He sat on the throne of Rome as a God given to them to set things in order. He was supposed to be the salvation for this Roman people. And providence had filled him with her spirit. And you know what they did? Because there was a king who was going to be birthed and who was going to come to the throne. They said, euangelion. The Savior is here. And they believed that it was Caesar Augustus. And so this is why this is scandalous and it's very brave too. Because what Mark is saying and what our gospel is saying, no, Caesar is not the true euangelion. It's Jesus who is the true good news. And he is the gospel and he is the Savior. But to this day, there's a temple with inscription saying that Caesar Augustus is the euangelion of the world. And so our Christian faith is also challenging, not just Caesar Augustus, but every other ruler and king that came after and that will rise up and whoever, whatever systems we create that think that they are God and divine, our Christian faith is opposing and challenging that from generation to generation. Quite fascinating. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, it says, From that time on, Jesus began to preach. Again, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Verse 18 says, As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. What does Jesus say? He says, come, follow me, he said, and I will send you out to fish for people. And at once they left their nets and they followed him. They received the euangelion. They received the good news. It wasn't because he was cool. He said, repent. The king is here and move their hearts. And they forsook their careers, everything that they were doing at the moment, and they followed him. And so you see Jesus now, and he's going to start to move, and he's going to invite two other fishermen, James and John, and he's going to say, come, follow me. And they're also, too, they're going to drop their nets, and then they're going to start following Jesus. In verse 23, it says, Jesus went out throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming, look, again, the euangelion of the kingdom of what? Heaven. And healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria, and the people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed. And what did he do? And he healed them. And look what happens in verse 25. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. So he's moving in power and he's announcing, as the prophet Isaiah prophesied that the king would return, Jesus is saying, it's now here. The king is here. He makes this beautiful invitation, and now the people are following him. He's the place where heaven is meeting earth now. In the Old Testament, you had that tabernacle, right, that was positioned, and everyone had to draw near the tabernacle. And you had to come in right. If not, you couldn't go in. You get, you know, you die in there. But Jesus now as the tabernacle. Jesus is now the temple come, come on earth. 
Jesus' body is the temple where the presence of God is dwelling. But the beautiful thing, he's not a stationary temple. He's a temple on the move. And he's going out and he's preaching. He's inviting people to come to him. This is why now in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, it begins too. The Gospel of John begins by talking about that, you know, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and that all things were made through him, and nothing was made that was made except it was made by him. And it talks about him being the light, him being the true light that came into the world and came into the darkness, and the darkness was not able to overcome it. It addresses him as the light. But in verse 14 of John chapter 1, it says this, The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the only one and son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. Some of your translations, depending on what you're reading, that's New International Version. It says, and the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Some of the translations you might read, dwelt among us. Do you guys remember what God said to Moses about building the tabernacle so that he could do what? He can dwell among them. He didn't want to be a God that was up in a mountain that only Moses had access to. The heart of the creator, the heart of the father was to have this tabernacle so that he can dwell in their very midst and so they can dwell in his. And then the gospel of John is saying that that word became flesh and now dwelt among us. And we have seen that through who? Jesus. The beautiful thing also about that word dwelling or dwelt, in the Greek it actually means tabernacle. Like when you set up a tent. So what it says is the word became flesh and tabernacled amongst us. The tabernacle was the tent. The tabernacle was the first temple where God's presence came down and the people were able to access the beauty and the splendor and the wisdom of God and his mighty power. And so what John is saying, he's saying Jesus is the tabernacle. He's the temple and he's dwelling amongst us. Come. And so this is who... Jesus will reveal himself to be. And this is why it's so important that we don't, that, that we don't, um, we don't stop at miracle-working Jesus, okay? Don't stop at miracle-working Jesus. Go into his teachings. Go into the parables where 90% of his parables, you know how they all start? The kingdom of heaven is like. Now we have some context. The kingdom of heaven is like. He said, when you pray, pray that the will that's in heaven be done on earth. And you see Jesus constantly trying to bring heaven into the earth. The parables that he's teaching, you go through your Bible, you'll see that there's chapters and chapters where there's parables. You're like, ah, I want to go to get to a miracle. No. The miracle is not just... The, the, the kingdom of heaven is not just in the miracle, it's in the teaching, it's in the instruction, it's in the story. Read Sermon on the Mount. One of my desires is to memorize Sermon on the Mount. It's three chapters, that's a hard one. I'm getting old here, I can't even remember verses no more. But why do I want to do that? Because his first introduction to the kingdom of heaven is really displayed through the Sermon on the Mount. You want to know what heaven is like? Read Most of us, heaven are clouds and angels with wings and harps. The problem with that view is that that's nowhere in Scripture what heaven is like. 
That's the only problem that, according to the Bible, that's not what heaven is just like. Jesus, through his life, is saying heaven is here and it's come now. And you want to live out heaven on earth? It's this way. These are the ways of the kingdom. And this is what heaven, you know what heaven looks like? Forgiveness. You know what heaven looks like? Forgiving someone that hurt you. You know what heaven looks like? Being pure. And it's just, it's just beautiful. It's trying to teach us what heaven looks like so we can live out heaven now. The problem is we all think heaven's just a place I go to when I die. And because we don't know that we can bring heaven on earth now, then we don't even try to. You know how Matthew ends, and I'm going to finish right now. The final chapter of Matthew is Matthew chapter 28. By that point, Jesus has already resurrected. You know what he's going to do? He's going to take his boys back up into the mountain. He's going to take them into the mountain. Matthew 28, verse 16. says, then the 11 disciples went to Galilee. Why is there 11? Yeah, Judas uh, didn't make it. Spoiler, Judas didn't make it. Go read how he didn't make it. So the 11, look, they go to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. And when they saw him, they worshiped him and some doubted. On the holy mountain with Yahweh in the flesh, some worship and some doubt. I honestly think that's just such a true picture of how how we are, how humanity lives out, even being in the right place at the right time. Some of us are in here right now, worshiping, and some of us even now have our doubts. Some of us are those two in one. One part I worship and another part I doubt. It's the human, human struggle and the human fight that we have. But nonetheless, it doesn't say, and Jesus told the doubters, go and make your dwelling with Judas. He doesn't. Does he kick off any off the mountain? Does he say, can I get all the true worshipers to the right and you doubters step to the left? I got to share some very important information with those who truly know. This is the good news of the gospel. That he even allows the doubters to sit in his presence, hopefully that the word will transform them until they too worship. Look, then Jesus came to them and said, he speaks to all of them, worshipers and doubters alike. All authority, where? In heaven and on earth has been given to me. So for all of us who have this picture, right, of heaven being over there and the earth being all the way over here, all divided. Do we got my pictures of heaven and earth? So far apart, right? That's how we see heaven and earth. Heaven is God's space. He dwells somewhere over there and we're left on pitiful earth over there. And hopefully, right, when I die, I float over there. The whole story of the Bible and what Jesus is saying, Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven has come. And what you need to see happening in that picture, them start, start being drawn to one another. And so Jesus says, it's in me where heaven 
and earth come together and where it overlaps. It's in that, it's in that middle space there where, 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 where heaven is touching earth. And, and we see the power of God through his words and through his power. Heaven is touching earth. And, and you know what Jesus says? When you pray, pray that that happens. He doesn't say pray you go to heaven. He says pray that heaven steps into your earth. That's what Jesus says to pray for, that the will that's in heaven be done where? On earth, as it is taking place in heaven. So today I want to invite you to understand heaven, not as this high place past our solar system, because as far as we take our rockets, we still can't find a picture of heaven. Where is this thing? Is it because heaven's not necessarily a physical place north of our head? Or is it, yes, a God space that is just another dimension of truth, of God's power, of his wonder, his beauty, that he invites us to enter into? Even the language of heaven in the Gospels is more about us entering it than us float into it in order for you to enter the kingdom of heaven. So today you can enter into the presence of God by turning yourself and saying, I believe the euangelion is here. It has arrived in Jesus. And so if the euangelion, the good news, if heaven came when Jesus came, and we're here now 2,000 years later, and it's being offered to you, then what that means is that heaven's been waiting for you. Heaven's been waiting for you. Today, heaven awaits you. And so look what Jesus says. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He's king where? In heaven and on earth. And then he says, therefore go and make disciples of other nations. See, so when we come to God as a disciple and we're transformed into his image, right, and we become the light, then Jesus is telling his disciples, now you go and make disciples as he made them disciples. And so if Jesus is in the middle where heaven is meeting earth and that's where his disciples met him, and now he's going to call them to go out and make disciples of the earth, what is Jesus trying to do? He's trying to spread heaven through who? Through him in us. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And look, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. So what are we, how do we spread heaven? We spread heaven... By teaching others what he taught those first disciples. The question is, do, you know, do we know any of what God taught them? No. For the most, most of us don't care what Sermon on the Mount said. Most of us don't know any of the parables where Jesus is saying, this is what heaven looks like. That's our biggest problem. Yes, we need banners that say Jesus is king to announce euangelion, but when someone comes and says, oh, okay, so tell me about that king and his kingdom. If all we know is, I don't know, he's just king. It's not compelling. Do we know the good news? Do we know the gospel? Most of us just know the cross portion where he finished his work, but all of what he was doing was part of bringing the, the kingdom of heaven on earth. 
And I truly believe that it's our responsibility to know what Jesus said. He told them, yes, announce euangelion. Yes, share the gospel, make disciples. But he said, but teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. What did Jesus command is the question. And he says, and surely I am with you always to the very end of age. And the gospel of Matthew closes. And so does my sermon. <laughs> I got nothing else till next week. <laughs> so my encouragement today, one is first an invitation to this good news. Jesus is king. It was prophesied through the prophets that he will return, and he has already come. Heaven has already come. And it's available to those that are broken, to those that are mourning, to the meek. Heaven is here for you through Jesus Christ. And for those of us that already feel that we have entered the kingdom of heaven through our faith and belief in him, then it becomes our responsibility to be able to describe heaven not just to be able to describe it to people, but to know what it is so that then we can live it out. And to me, that's truly our greatest preaching. Our greatest preaching is how we live the kingdom of heaven out. But the only way to live that out is to know everything that Jesus said and commanded. So if you're like, man, I, you know, I don't know where to start with my Bible, there's a good place right there. Start to know what Jesus meant by him saying the kingdom of heaven is here. Amen? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for today, the grace of today. Father, I'm amazed at your, your faithfulness to keep your promise, Lord, to your people Israel, and I'm more amazed at your, your extension of grace to, to us Gentiles, Father. I do thank you, Lord God, that when the people you called to be your image failed. Father, you, you stepped down from heaven, Lord. And you became flesh for us, Lord, and we have seen that through Jesus, Lord. Father, I thank you for saving us, Lord, for we understand that part of the gospel is that, Father, you, you became sin for us, Lord. And the wrath of God punished you on our behalf, Lord. The chastisement of our peace was upon you, Lord, and therefore by your stripes, Lord, we have been healed, Lord. So, Father, we thank you for saving us, Lord, by the sacrifice of Jesus, Lord. Crucified King, Lord, on our behalf. But we also rejoice knowing that death could not hold him nor the grave. But you lifted him out of the grave, Lord, and he has ascended. Father, he sits at your right hand, and we know we just read in your word that all of authority in heaven and on earth belongs to him, Lord. So today we worship Jesus as king, Lord. Not just king of our lives, but king of this world, Lord. We acknowledge that today. Father, I pray that those who are far off, Lord, that they would know that they can draw near to you by this good news message, Lord. That they receive you today as their king, Lord. And may all of us Search your scriptures to understand what it is, what it is to be in your kingdom. What are the ways of the kingdom, Lord? 
But Father, I pray that as we read and we discover, Lord, that that will transform us, Lord. It'll change us. It'll change our mind, change our understanding, ultimately changing our actions. Father, I know and I trust that if we are changed and transformed by your word, then we can be that light. We can make disciples, Lord, and the rest of the world can experience heaven on earth, Lord. Father, we thank you. Thank you so much, Jesus. Today we tell you that we love you. Forgive us of our sin, Lord, our trespass, Lord. Help us to forgive others as you have forgiven us, Lord. Help us to be the image bearers that you called us to be, to be like you, to love like you, to have patience like you. Father, we thank you for this church. I thank you for every person here today. May this message stay in their heart, stay in their mind, and may it only just intrigue them more to know you and your word. I thank you for all the pastors that are here, all the leaders, everyone who serves, Lord. Thank you, Lord God, for their love, their commitment to the temple. Father, I pray that you bless this house. May we never have need. May we never lack. And may our church be a lighthouse in our community, in our city, Lord. So, Father, we thank you. We thank you for all these things. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.